On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your ghost, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. You're going to get buried alive, you know, 12 feet underground. I don't think anyone knows what they're in for if they go here. And it's a good experience. I mean, if you can handle it. Here you will be subjected to constant torture and everlasting pain. I can't fucking <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been going to haunted house attractions for as long as I can remember. In fact, one of the earliest memories that I have is a hand popping out from under a table, grabbing at my tiny leg as I held on to my plastic McDonald's-sponsored Halloween trick-or-treat bucket. I remember the thrill of rattling through jerky carnival dark rides with animatronic skeletons cackling out their doomy warnings. I remember waiting in line in the 90s for radio station haunts that blasted out advertisements between the hottest alternative rock songs, the lines full of teenagers trying to look tough. Still, every year, I travel out to the cornfields of local farms, the haunts hidden on the outskirts of their lots, booming in the distance, beyond the quaint pumpkin patches and the country store full of benign Halloween decorations and jars full of pickled vegetables. My family still has a tradition of going out to the Shriners charity haunt, spread in several buildings across a golf course, with teenagers and dedicated civil servants giving us everything from alien encounters to problematic redneck psychopaths to major clown encounters, complete with 3D glasses. I always take time to appreciate the sets, from the most rinky-dink to the highest-budget immersions of major theme park walkthroughs. I even love waiting in line for 45 minutes in the October cold, as raspy teenagers making minimum wage stalk through the crowd, laughing with their first taste of power, brave and brazen, now that they're covered in blood in full drag as our campiest American monsters. Today, we're going to dive into the history of the American haunted house attraction and the people who've advanced the art form over the years, for better and for worse. We'll also ask the burning question, why do some of us like to be scared? And why do some of us like to be scared far beyond the boundaries of others? Instead of looking at culture or psychology, we are going to look into the biology of chosen danger and find out if it could indeed be coded into our very DNA 
that drive to seek out thrilling experiences. Because for me, the pull to these haunted houses is almost primal. It's deep in my heart, and it might be deep in yours too, or maybe not. Either way, come with me. Let me be your demonic guide, your killer clown, your bloody ghoul. Let me show you what I love. Halloween as we know it is a mashup of the Celtic Samhain and the Catholic's All Saints Day. But the autumn time has always inspired universal themes of coming darkness and death. Departed spirits may be said to return. The veil between the living and the dead lifted. A time when demons can more easily steal souls or souls more easily might be able to reach through to the living. When Halloween was introduced into America, as you might guess, the Puritans sent it straight back to hell, but by the mid-1800s, things started to look a little more familiar. Halloween started to take its modern form. As scores of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland entered the New World, the boys and young men brought with them a veritable treasure chest of Halloween pranks. The local American white boys were all too happy to join in, learning such classics as pulling up a turnip stalk, lighting it on fire to get it smoking, and then jamming it in the keyhole of a house to get it smelling just terrible in there. And boys will be boys, so the pranks kept cranking up, each year worse than the last roving packs of delinquents would string ropes across sidewalks to trip pedestrians, coat chapel seats with molasses, tie doorknobs of opposing houses together, knock over everything they could find, including occupied outhouses, lead livestock onto barn roofs and just tear up a bunch of crops, smear paint all over houses, explode pipe bombs, and in their most jackassian move leave dummies on train tracks to scare conductors. By the early 1900s, these quaint rural pranks went into hyperdrive in crowded cities. Fire alarms were pulled, bricks were thrown through windows, curse words painted on houses, small fires were set that sometimes turned into big fires, and if you were dumb enough to be out on Halloween night, you could be jumped for treats. In Maryland in 1939, a little girl almost had to have her entire arm amputated because a boy hit her with a rock. In 1932, a man almost lost his eye when a teenager blasted him in the face with a rock. In 1929, an unhinged group of boys planted and then detonated dynamite on their high school campus. Several people were even killed by pranks that involved hiding dangerous objects on roadways. 
all of this malarkey was costing actual American lives and millions of American dollars in the middle of a Great Depression. Eventually, the adults had had enough, arming themselves with rifles, threatening death at the teenagers, and even firing shots at some of the rowdiest groups. From what it sounds like, it was basically the early 20th century version of The Purge, but real. And like The Purge, the mischief had been tolerated for that one night exclusively, with that boys-will-be-boys attitude. Uh, Just let them get it out of their system. But by 1942, as America entered the Second World War, the adults of this uncertain nation just could not tolerate this shit anymore. A Rochester, New York superintendent put it this way in a letter to the editor. Letting the air out of tires isn't fun. It's sabotage. Soaping windows isn't fun this year. Your government needs soaps and greases for the war. Even ringing doorbells has lost its appeal because it may mean disturbing the sleep of a tired war worker who needs his rest. The adults didn't care that Halloween was about more than these dumbass pranks from a bunch of dumbass boys. But it didn't matter. The war on Halloween had begun. The Chicago City Council voted to ban the holiday outright and replace it with Conservation Day. But thankfully for the youth and for the generations to come, the mayor never followed through with the plan. By 1950, President Truman again addressed the issue, expressing his hope to turn Halloween into Youth Honor Day, an event with the goal of instilling moral virtue in teenagers. But soon after, the Korean War eclipsed the Halloween controversy on the House of Representatives' list of important issues, and they tossed the motion aside. But as they do, local communities of suburban parents started to go totally rogue, towns across the nation seizing on the template for Truman's saccharine suckfest, Youth Honor Day. The Ocala, Florida chapter of the Moose Lodge threw a big old youth honor party complete with a crown-clad king and queen of youth honor and a parade to honor their honor. I'm sure some of the buttoned-up squares felt relief in the bland brown halls of the Elks Lodge, but many other teenagers were not about to trade their devilish night of freedom for this. The parents, administrators, and local politicians all knew that Youth Honor Day just wasn't working. But they also felt like they were onto something here. Yes, a distraction. Hmm, yes. A way to convince the kids that they're doing something exciting. Something, hmm, transgressive. While still keeping them off the streets. Because banning Halloween, that would just make it more attractive. No, no, no. Give them what they want without giving them what they want. 
And so, with that scheme in mind, neighborhoods began decorating their basements in different spooky themes. Every house on the block, and so kids and teens could haunted house hop their way to a bag full of treats. No tricks necessary. An instructional party pamphlet taught adults how to create a frightening but cheap haunted living room. Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls, where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners, and damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling and touch his face. A guard dressed as a dog suddenly jumps out at him, barking and growling. Slowly, the popularity of pranks did begin to die out, replaced by a much tamer and far more parent-sanctioned evening with far less property damage. But Halloween cannot be contained by those unenchanted by its spirit, and so the haunted house attraction took on a life of its own. Welcome. Foolish mortals to the haunted mansion. In 1969, Walt Disney would open his famous, fantastic, and squeaky clean haunted mansion in Disneyland, modeled after the far more punk rock dark rides that had been a staple of carnivals since the 1800s. These type of amusements take place in indoor environments and use guided vehicles to move people through different scenes. Tens of thousands of people would pass through Disney's haunted mansion, which would inspire a massive DIY movement across the nation. Conventional houses, warehouses, basements, factories, schools, churches, new construction—virtually every kind of facility which might lend itself. To the J.C. Haunted House project, the original royalty of the haunted house attraction scene was perhaps surprisingly the very exciting-sounding group, the United States Junior Chamber, or the J.C.s, a nonprofit personal development business leadership club that also does community service. And side note. Unexplainably boasts a roster of impressive and controversial former and present members: Bill Clinton, Elvis Presley, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Howard Hughes, Charles Lindbergh, Al Gore, Bill Gates, Larry Bird. Oh, and also serial killers John Wayne Gacy and Edmund Kemper. Well, that's really weird, but I don't know what else to say about it. So let's move on. <laughs> Throughout the 1960s and 70s, the JCs turned out to be pretty cool indeed, creating the original charity haunted houses that popped up all over the country, using whatever locations they could find, abandoned buildings and parks and fields, transforming them, creating original sets and using their own special effects with makeup and costuming to transform their volunteers into monsters and ghouls. Without the moving vehicles of the dark rides, patrons just walk themselves through these living, breathing horror dioramas. 
These haunts became so in demand that the president of the Bloomington chapter named Tom Hillegoss wrote a guidebook, a blueprint for other JC chapters to follow. How to recruit teenage actors, how to set and reset a scene, how to use darkness as a tool when you're on a tight budget. Across the country he went, as one central Illinois newspaper put it, quote, A Johnny Appleseed gone bad. Tom Hillegoss hopes to spread terror across the land. Truly, if JCs continue to become involved ever more professionally in this haunted house project, there will be a day very soon that JCs will own Halloween. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. I so wish I could have gone to a place called Blood Manor. In the early 1970s, it became an infamous haunt created by a 24-year-old school teacher and former theater kid from Maryland named Itsy Atkins. He was turned off by the sugary tameness of Disney's Haunted Mansion, and the JC charity events just weren't living up to his ghoulish standards. In the early stages of Blood Manor's creation, Itsy Atkins knew that location mattered for two reasons, keeping the cost low and adding an extra mystique, some theatrical lore. 
When he found the right place, he knew. An abandoned nunnery in the small rural town of Ridge, Maryland. It was crumbling, dark, dank, and likely a little dangerous. But it was the 70s, so that was fine. He rented the covenant from a local Catholic church and got right to work. Teaming up with another creative named Skip Smith, who had just created a haunted house in the local college basement, the two men set out to make Halloween history. And they got their funding after striking an agreement with the county. They would sponsor Blood Manor in return for the proceeds going to the Parks Department. Great. But something was going to be different about Blood Manor. Instead of participants moving through scenes, Itzy Atkins wanted to make the experience more interactive, to make the guests a part of the show. At Blood Manor, you could be chased and you could be touched. It was an immediate success. Thousands flooded to test their courage in the face of unprecedented theatrical gore, with scenes that included an operating room where blood-covered surgeons were amputating a man's legs. A British tabloid would dub the haunt the sickest show in America. I mean, the sickest show in America. And guess what? According to Itzy Atkins, it was Blood Manor that even gave us the most potently haunting haunted house tool of all, the gas-powered chainsaw, from which he simply removed the chain. Then they put fake blood into the oil tank that would spray out when the chainsaw was running, quote, you could scrape that across somebody's arm and they would think it was going into bone. The chainsaw always cleared them out. And it's true. It always clears me out. Suffice to say, the sleepy town did not like Blood Manor. They hated it, in fact, and tried multiple times to get it shut down, while newspapers ran indignant editorials that just sent more wayward youth to this new mecca of transgression. Blood Manor would run for almost a decade, with great success, popping up in different creepy locations every year. Urban legends about the manor abounded, too, with people recalling tales of teenagers hanged inside the haunt about a fire that trapped a group of teenagers inside. But that last urban legend would soon prove prophetic, though Blood Manor and its fans would be spared. Because the civic-minded 70s turned into the business-hungry 80s, the charity haunt scene now had its competitors, entrepreneurs catching the scent of all that fake blood money. Following in the footsteps of Disney and the anti-up by Blood Manor, other theme parks like Knott's Berry Farm, or Knott's Scary Farm, and Six Flags began installing their own haunted houses with those major studio budgets, which meant they could hire professional actors and build elaborate sets with electronic effects and Hollywood-style makeup and costuming. The true nail in the coffin of the charity scarehouse heyday would come in the form of that fire on the night of May 11, 1984, when the haunted castle at a New Jersey Six Flags Adventure Park 
caught fire with 29 people inside. To this day, it's unclear what started the fire, with Six Flags avoiding culpability by claiming in court that it was arson, the victims arguing that the park had not followed legal safety protocol. Citizens across the state and nation were outraged, horrified, with everyone agreeing that something had to be done. Won't somebody think of the teenagers? Lawmakers acted fast, enacting far stricter safety laws and building codes for commercial and charity haunts alike, which meant more expensive materials and location rentals. By and large, the nonprofit world just couldn't hack all the new regulations and potential fines and increased insurance. They were drowning in a sea of bureaucracy, and across the country, charity haunts began closing in huge numbers. But there was one charity, or at least a tax-exempt group, that, like the parents of the first half of the century, thought they could kind of swoop in and use the template of the haunted houses to quell the rebellion of the wayward youth. If the devil thinks of Halloween as his special holiday, then we as Christians certainly don't want to give Satan any shelter, do we? And that's exactly what we're talking about. The important thing to remember here is that it's not what we think Halloween is; it's what the devil thinks of it. As we might assume, Halloween, a now pretty benign bacchanal of kids being kids, has always received the ire of the right-wing Christians of America. Since the 70s, adherents have been trying to popularize hallow witnessing, a chance to use this Satan-sanctioned evening against Satan himself. The goofiest preachers encouraged good Christians to use trick-or-treating to covertly spread the gospel to spiritually impoverished children who were assumed to be, at best, ignorant of Christ and, at worst, a child of the organized occult. They would hand out candy with names like Bazooka Jesus Chewing Gum and Scripture Candy, the makers of fish mints, and of course. Testaments, the mint with the message. A pretty extreme evangelical preacher and self-proclaimed anti-occult expert and demon exorcism specialist named Dr. Troy Franklin highlighted Kit Kats as an especially easy candy wrapper to slide a little Bible verse into—a different kind of razor in the candy apple. He encouraged families to carve Jesus-o-lanterns, the glowing cross, a signal that you are hallow witnessing. Dr. Franklin encouraged children and parents to also buy biblical costumes from Christian companies that included a comfortable latex crown of thorns. But all this hallow witnessing was going about as well as Youth Honor Day had. It just could not beat out the thrill of the Halloween spirit, which cannot be contained by those unenchanted by it. And so they did what the parents of the 1940s did: they tried to beat Halloween and its young fans, who were steeped in metal music and slasher films, at their own gory game. And boy, did they come out swinging! Started by evangelical televangelist and notorious American hysteria villain 
Jerry Falwell Sr. in the 1970s, these haunted house attractions, referred to as hell houses, began popping up all over the country by the 1980s. But this fright was different. It had one goal in mind, besides the tax-exempt cash, of course. That is, to encourage spiritual conversion of its participants with the most terrifying human question of all. Do you know where you will go when you die? Fun. They were similar to the JC model, groups moving from room to room, with actors performing the most modern of American sins, and then, in the eyes of certain evangelicals, reaping what they sowed with far more shocking gore than any teen slasher flick of the time. Welcome. Your journey has finally brought you to the place of eternal agony. Here you will be subjected to constant torture and everlasting pain. Come, let us meet those who have swallowed the poison of my life. I need to spare you and myself from these descriptions. I actually wrote them all out and then we deleted them. If you haven't seen the 2001 Hell House documentary or gone through one yourself, it's just so much worse than you think. So here's the short of it. Led by a raspy demon, people pass through depictions of things like a homosexual dying from AIDS, brutal scenes of the consequences of abortion pills, school shootings, and live, very gory suicides, spousal abuse, satanic ritual sacrifices, racist gang scenes, unconscionable and bizarre scenes about rape and child molestation. A popular guide to creating your own hell house that could be purchased for a couple hundred bucks told churches, quote, do your very best to buy or purchase a meat product that will resemble as much as possible pieces of a baby that are being placed in the glass bowl for all to see. It is rough. And then at the end of all of this, patrons are given the same choice. They can either accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior and head into the prayer room where the church members are waiting to help, or they can exit the building through the other door, presumably toward eternal damnation. A man dressed in normal clothing asks the crowd what they're going to do and then gives them six seconds to make that choice. And this part gets really intense and the pressure to go in the room is palpable, but it seems the majority choose to get the hell out of there. Hell houses continue their brutal run to this day, but they're far less common than they were in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s. But in the early 2000s, too, rumors started to spread about a new kind of attraction. Rumors of a place where the actors could actually touch you, which was a completely foreign notion in a lawsuit-hungry nation. Apparently, you had to sign a waiver to go into this place, and if you did go in, you would face real torture. You might come out with PTSD, or you might not come out at all. 
The outrage has followed them since, with online petitions and calls to the police, newspaper articles and documentaries and internet sleuthing, this obsession about what's really going on in extreme haunted houses, especially one running out of a nondescript house in San Diego. More after this. And now, back to the show. It's really intense, and I don't think anyone knows what they're in for if they go here. We do a lot of things with claustrophobia, of course, a lot of waters involved. You're going to get buried alive, you know, 12 feet underground. You got to figure out how to get out of this coffin, which is pretty crazy. Creator of the controversial and now legendary McCamey Manor, Russ McCamey, is a hard man to describe. Mid-50s, looks kind of like he just rolled out of bed, a gray crew cut, and a scratchy five o'clock shadow, a mischievous smile plastered on his face, it seems at all times. McCamey says that he uses mind manipulation he learned during his years in the Navy to put participants through a horror boot camp, an experience that he says gleefully he would never put himself through. The haunt can last anywhere from 30 seconds to six hours, depending on what the participant can take. And it isn't a campy haunt full of our favorite monsters at all. It's a haunt that aims to recreate real traumatic experiences. Each person chosen to enter is interviewed by Russ, made to pass a background check and take a drug test. And through these interviews, personalized fears are integrated into the show. If you can make it through to the end, you will win a prize of $20,000. You got to show up wearing an adult onesie and stand out on a suburban road where you will be abducted into a roving white band by a couple of masked maniacs. Once you arrive, Russ brings out his famous 40-page waiver that releases your very life to this legendary psychopath who many believe to be a fetish-driven torture fanatic who is guilty of everything from covered-up murders to MK Ultra mind control, kidnapping, organ harvesting, sex trafficking. After reading through the waiver, which takes several hours and details all the terrifying and nauseating possibilities of McCamey Manor, you're finally pulled into McCamey's nightmare, thrown around and screamed at and even slapped by masked men, where you may be tied to chairs or tables, where you can be stuck with a needle full of sedatives or made to take unidentified pills, fed rotten meat covered in snakes and spiders and cockroaches, your teeth pulled out with pliers, almost drowned to death, with your hair and eyebrows buzzed off completely. And apparently, it gets much worse than that, but I'll spare you the rest of those details. There are even cameras hanging in the corners of the rooms, and Russ tells his participants that their walkthroughs will be live-streamed via the dark web to a shadowy elite group in Las Vegas or Denmark who will bet on how long they last or vote for the next tortures they will endure. 
For a long time, the haunt was famous for having no safe word at all. Once you go in, only rust decides when you come out. Also, the haunt is essentially free. It's a nonprofit requiring only the donation of dog food to a greyhound rescue. A big 50-pound bag of dog food will get you into the McKinney Manor show. This is part of what freaks people out, right? He must really, really want to do this to people. He also boasts of the ex-cons he hires as haunters, all of them also volunteers. Despite all of this, the waiting list to get in is 17,000 people. A petition to shut the manor down has received 175,000 signatures, with Reddit and YouTube channels fervently dedicated to stopping Russ McCamey, all trying to reveal the darkest truths of the manor. But how much of this mythos is actually true? I spent way too much of my precious time on this earth trying to figure out that answer. The slick videos put out by Russ McCamey, who claims to be a filmmaker first and a haunter second, do show fast mashups of the worst of the worst. And yes, it gets bad, gross, and seemingly dangerous. But McCamey, in almost every interview, says it's all smoke and mirrors, which most online take as a villainous lie to cover up his crimes. I've watched several entire walkthroughs of this haunt on YouTube, and I've been able to ascertain some other things from my research, but other things remain extremely murky, especially the character of Russ McCamey. Okay, so there's no 17,000-person waiting list. There's no $20,000 prize. Russ stops it when he wants to, even if the participant is begging to continue. These stories are still reported as fact in the media. Everyone just seems to take Russ McCamey at his word. There is no shadowy group in Vegas or Denmark. The cameras are not hooked up to anything. The only live streams are done by someone following the participant around beside McCamey, who's leading them through with a well-lit camera in their face. There are no teeth pulled out, no drugs injected, no bones broken. There are needles, but they're retractable. There are pills, but they're candy. There are pliers pushed into mouths, but they're plastic. But it is true, people leave with bruises. They're pushed under water, sprayed until they're shivering cold. They do have their heads shaved, a kind of badge of honor in the cult-like fandom of McCamey Manor. But from what I've watched, the exit interviews, no matter how bad the people look, seem to, by and large, show fake blood-covered but happy customers, not customers traumatized for life. Do you have any, any parting words that you want to say to folks? I just would like to, everyone to know that none of this is forced. Everyone is warned. You are warned several times. Um, it's all voluntary. And you're not really, I mean, it's a lot, it's very much mental. You're not really in, in danger per se. It's all mental, it's staged, and it's a good experience. I mean, if you can handle it. Mm -hmm. But there are those who've claimed abusive treatment, claim that Russ really does have a more sadistic agenda than he will admit to. 
But there are others who claim that he's nothing but a showman. It's such a wild rabbit hole. We'll be covering the whole controversy in our first episode soon on Hysteria Home Companion, our new talk show on Patreon. At the end of this grand obsession of my own, all I know for certain is I'm not going to McCamey Manor. You probably don't want to go either. Or maybe you do. But why would anyone want to do something like that? All right, let's start with the segment Chelsea tries to talk about brain science. Here goes one theory on chosen fear that I found especially cool. Though, as always with these things, there are many others worth exploring, too. David Zald is Vanderbilt's director of the Effective Neuroscience Laboratory and professor of psychology, and also a neighborhood haunter himself, setting up creepy scenes for kids to pass through to get their candy reward. Dr. Zald had a question he wanted answered. Quote, humans have a unique situation where we seek out things that scare us. We've got to ask, what could make this exposure rewarding? So he and his team conducted a set of experiments, hoping to understand why some people are drawn to more extreme experiences and scenarios involving risk, under the hypothesis that the way we react depends on how our individual brains are wired. Using 34 participants, both men and women, the team had each person fill out a questionnaire that asked about their desire to seek out novel experiences, to try new things, to be spontaneous, to break the law. Next, they took a look at the brain scans for these individuals. For all humans, fear releases several hormones, including adrenaline and dopamine. As we know, dopamine is essentially a pleasure hormone that acts as a reward, creating a pleasurable sensation and mood. But it can also enhance our attention and coordination. For some people, however, we get a little too much dopamine when we're scared. Or rather, we have less of what are called autoreceptors, stay with me, essentially structures that act as brakes, slowing the flood of dopamine as it heads to its receptors. In Dr. Zald's studies, those who liked to take risks received more dopamine than those who played it safe. Thus, those of us really into haunted houses may very well be biologically inclined toward them. Maybe those daring participants in McCamey Manor are not as psychologically twisted as everyone in the YouTube comments seems to think. Maybe the brakes are just out on their dopamine train. <laughs> Dr. Zold also points out that these thrill-seeking genes were likely passed on through millions of years because those who sought out new experiences were often rewarded. Those who fought, overcame predators, and found new resources, better land, more mates. 
those who hunker down to protect their family and community, taking deadly serious every possible threat, well, they did pretty good too. And there's evidence out of the University of Bonn in Germany of another gene variant that causes excess anxiety when scary content is viewed. Margie Kerr is a doctor of sociology and a haunted house engineer at Pittsburgh's Scare House, an experience that lies somewhere between traditional and extreme. Dr. Kerr believes that haunted houses, in addition to scaring you, need another important element to make them actually enjoyable. You have to know in your conscious mind that you're truly safe, even when your primal self is screaming. You have to be able to recalibrate your brain out of panic mode in order to reap that dopamine reward. Because none of us enjoy the experience of true terror, which is why, for most people, a place like McKamey Manor is unthinkable. Dr. Kerr's scare house is dedicated to making sure its participants know that they're safe at all times, able to stop the experience the moment that they ask. In her book, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear, Dr. Kerr explains how she uses scientific data, experiments, and input from her guests to design what amounts to a scientific, immersive haunted house experience that toes that valuable line between too scary and not scary enough. This is because Dr. Kerr says she not only wants her guests to come away frightened, but also to come away feeling, quote, wonderful. There's much argument, much controversy from both the haunt community and the public at large about which haunts of the haunts that we've covered today go too far, which have honorable intentions and which have hidden agendas which are safe and which are not. I suppose, dear listener, that you will have to make that judgment for yourselves. The answer to why some of us like to be scared and the degree of fear that we can handle is uniquely tailored to each individual, and we won't discover all the nuances of our darkest hearts today. But this may be another piece to the puzzle as to why there are those of us that enjoy being chased through a hall of mirrors by a clown wielding a chainsaw, which you can hear me screaming and laughing about in the opening audio. Dr. Kerr also points out that when we do feel a background of safety, we can jump from heightened states, screaming and then venting our relief with unrestrained laughter. These heightened states also cause us to naturally bond to our group, whether we know them or not. A community suddenly thrown together in war, everyone, for once, willing to grab onto the arm of a stranger who in return might welcome the comfort. So this Halloween, or if you'd prefer, this Youth Honor Day, Let's honor the honor of the spirit of the haunted house attraction in all its gory glory. A rare institution in America that tells you straight out and straight up, we are here to make you afraid, but only if you want us to.
This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we'll be talking to a celebrity of the haunter community, someone who's been scaring for 45 years, someone who's going to tell us what it's like to be on the other side. We also have a new show coming to Patreon called Hysteria Home Companion, with me and producer Miranda Zickler diving deep into things that weren't covered on the episode. This time, it will be a lot about that McKamey Manor drama, and boy, does it get weird. So head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or click the link in our show notes. We'll put out a reminder on our feed when it comes out. Come and follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. And if you like our new logo, we have merch available on AmericanHysteria.com. This episode has sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched by Riley Smith, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And despite all these real-world fears... I hope this Halloween that all your chainsaws are chainless. Have a great youth honor day. I mean, Halloween.